today. It is no secret that over the past two years, it has been really, really hard to be just a human being, much less a follower of Jesus. And it really does feel like uh, over the past couple of years, when one sort of crazy, wild, unexpected, unprecedented thing happens, something else that's crazy and wild and unprecedented happens. And so I really feel like as I've been just talking with different people, and even as I have assessed my own soul, my own mind, I feel like when I'm asking people, how are you doing? A lot of what people say is, I'm tired. I'm tired. I don't know if you feel that. And it's like, man, we have COVID, and then we have social and political and economic and just global, like all of these words. And it's like, man, it just feels like everything it is happening all at once. And what I believe, I've titled my message today, Following Through Fear and Fatigue. Following Through Fear and Fatigue. What I love about the scripture is that God's word speaks to us in whatever season we're going through. And even, you know, it was written two to 4,000 years ago, written to its original audience halfway around the world, and yet it is so relevant to what's happening today. But what I love about God's word is it doesn't just speak to our situation. It actually calls us to look above our situation. And it gives us hope in the middle of it. And so Jesus and his disciples, they are going to be in a challenging situation that I do believe we are going to relate to. And Jesus is going to lead them and navigate them through it. And so that's the prayer. That's the hope. And that's how we're starting. So let's look with me. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And it says this, it says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. So here's the setup. We read that Jesus is near or around the Sea of Galilee and that he crosses over the Sea of Galilee to the other side where he ends up on a mountaintop with his disciples. So let's do a little geography lesson here. I have on the screen a map of the Middle East and you see uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia there kind of at the bottom left and then you see Israel over here to the right. Now most of the locations of the Gospel of John are either in Jerusalem, that bottom red dot, or the Sea of Galilee, that top red dot. Now we're going to zoom in here on the Sea of Galilee for just a second. And the Sea of Galilee really is actually a lake. It's, uh, I believe, about 15 miles uh, wide or long and then eight miles wide. And so on the top there, you see Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus's headquarters Uh, during his ministry, especially at the Sea of Galilee. This story is going to continue next week, and Capernaum is going to be the location. But Jesus, he sails across somewhere in that region, we don't know exactly where, to a solitary place. Now, uh, the Sea of Galilee is actually what's fascinating. It uh, It is the lowest fresh water lake in the world. It's 700 feet 
below sea level. And we have a picture of it here. So there's actually mountains or hills on every side. Incredibly, incredibly beautiful place. And so pretty much all surrounding the Sea of Galilee are these mountains and these hills. So you can see how it would be very easy to sail across the lake and go up on a mountain. We're going to study today a very famous story, the feeding of the 5,000. It really is going to be the feeding of the 15,000, as we discover. And there's only two miracles in all of the Gospels that are recorded uh, in all four Gospels. Jesus' resurrection and this story, the feeding of the 5,000, recorded in all four Gospels. And if you read them, you're going to notice that there are actually some slight variations, some different details in each one of the accounts. Now, some people, when they notice that there are different uh, details in each one of the accounts, they get a little worried because they start thinking, okay, this must mean the Bible isn't true. This must mean it didn't happen if there's differences. But what I believe is that the different stories, they don't contradict each other, they complement each other. And in just the same way as if you ask myself my wife Katie and my son Isaiah about an event, you would probably get slightly different details. It's the same thing in the scripture. So I'll give you an example. Let's say my, my wife uh, or myself, I, I woke up with my son Isaiah as I do almost every morning and, and we made breakfast together. Now I may describe that event and I may say, I had a great time with my son. It was a beautiful father-son moment together eating breakfast. If you ask Isaiah the same thing, he may say, eggs, good. It's probably all you're going to get out of it. And if you ask Katie about the same account, she would probably say something to the effect of, I'm, I'm really thankful that Brian loves spending so much time with our son and he's a great influence. And I wish he would do a better job cleaning up the kitchen after himself. <laughs> all the wives said, okay, yes, My, I'm still a work in progress, okay? It's not, that doesn't mean just because there's slightly different accounts that it didn't happen, right? It means that there's different perspectives. The Gospels don't contradict each other. They complement each other. And so that's what we're going to discover. Now, we're going to look at a couple of the setups, one for Matthew and one for Mark, because I want us to really feel and understand what are Jesus and his disciples going through at the start of this story. So look at Matthew. Here's what it says. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, and specifically the killing of John the Baptist by Herod the Tetrarch, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. So here's part of the setup. Jesus has just learned that his cousin, his friend, his ministry partner, John the Baptist, has just been murdered for preaching. And so Jesus, he is in a moment of grieving. And his desire is, I want to get away. I want to get with my friends, my disciples, and we're going to get by ourselves and just take a moment and process this grief. And when he does this, he gets to the solitary place, but he finds out it's not so solitary because a crowd has joined them. And yet Jesus has compassion on this crowd and begins to heal them. So that's one layer of the story. Let's find out another layer, this from Mark. It says this in Mark chapter 6. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus 
and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now the apostles were about, had just been sent out on a short-term missions trip by Jesus. Who here has been on a short-term missions trip before? Raise your hand if you've been on a short-term missions trip. Beautiful, beautiful. If you've been on a missions trip, you know it is both exhilarating and exhausting. And so the disciples, they're back and they're excited about all God has done, and yet they are also tired. And it says this, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So here's the setup. Jesus is grieving. He's sorrowful. His disciples are tired. And so they go to get away, but when they're trying to get away, they don't get a chance to because a giant crowd is here. And Jesus takes compassion even in the sorrow, even in the weariness, and takes care of them. Now, what I believe is this really does speak to our cultural moment, that many of us are grieving and processing what has happened over the past couple of years. Many of us are weary, and yet there's not a break in sight. Like, whenever we think, okay, now's my time, I'm going to rest, I'm going to chill, like something else is happening. And so here's what we're going to discover today. Three things, three things that I believe are really going to help us as we follow Jesus in this moment in 2022. And the first thing is this, you can write it down, that Jesus values both hard work and rest. Jesus values both hard work and rest. And in this text, we see both. First off, we see that Jesus, he, he highly prioritizes hard work. His disciples have just been on this really tiring short-term missions trip, preaching and healing and, and, and stepping out in faith. Jesus himself during this whole story, healing and teaching throughout the entire day. And yet Jesus also values rest. He said to his disciples, you're tired, let's get away. He himself later in the passage is going to get away and be by himself for a moment with God. And what I've noticed is that most of us, we have a tendency to really, really like one or the other. I really love hard work, or maybe I love rest a little too much. And there's people that they love hard work. And for you, maybe the struggle is, I cannot stop. If I stop, if I slow down, I get anxious. I feel like I should just always be doing something. I feel like there's always more to be done, and so why should I take a break? I'm signing up for everything. I'm showing up for everything. Even when I'm supposed to be chilling, I'm doing a million things. And for us, we need to remember and we need to realize that God built a day of rest into the rhythm of our lives. Six days of work, one day of rest. That's the rhythm God put into creation. And when we practice a day of rest, when we practice a Sabbath, what we're actually saying to ourselves is, I'm not in charge of the universe. God is. I'm not in control. God is. And I'm trusting that even though I'm resting, God is still working. And so we need to learn how to rest. But for others of us, perhaps we, we need to value hard work. 
We, we live in a day and age that highly, highly values self-care, highly values treating yourself, highly values doing everything that you can to make yourself comfortable and really honestly sometimes feed the flesh. And what we need to remember is that oftentimes we were, we were built for hard work. We were built to be tired at the end of the day. Ministry is really rewarding, but it's also incredibly challenging. And so there is a great joy that comes when we're actually serving God. And I love the story. There's a, there's a man named Brother Lawrence. He was a 17th century French monk. And Brother Lawrence, his job in the monastery was to wash dishes. And he was famous because, not because he preached a lot of amazing sermons, not because he had an incredible evangelistic strategy. He was famous for having so much joy in the mundane task of washing dishes. And he said, listen, when I'm preaching, God is with me, but also when I am washing dishes, God is with me. And I think that this is important for us to remember. Because sometimes we can get caught up in this trap, especially in, in our day and age, that, man, this, this life that we're living is so hard. And so, man, I, I deserve all of this time off. I deserve all this rest. I deserve to feel good. And, and, and it's good to take rest. But, but as parents, as students, if you have a mundane job, there's actually a great joy that you can have in serving Jesus even in the mundane. May we never look at the, the things around us as a burden, but as an opportunity to say, yes, Jesus is with me here. I want to do my work for the glory of God. So God values both hard work and rest. Now let's keep going. Let's keep learning. Chapter 6, verse 5, it says this. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat. And Jesus asked this to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now Jesus here has a heart and a desire to feed people. And what I love is that Jesus, he could have said, listen, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm grieving, and I have already, by the way, been preaching and healing them. And the reason they don't have food, it's not my fault, it's their poor planning. Like y'all walked out into the wilderness with no lunch. That's your fault, not mine. But what I love is that Jesus, he has compassion and he says to Philip, hey, they're here. Let's not just take care of their spiritual needs, let's take care of their physical needs. I want you to know, Jesus cares about your physical needs. And yes, the spiritual is important more so because it's eternal. But the physical is equal, is important to God. And if you have a health issue, if you have a financial issue, if you have a relational issue, Jesus cares about it. And he wants to take care of you and walk with you with what you're going through. Let's keep going, verse 7. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, here is a boy 
with five barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? So Jesus presents his disciples a problem. He says, we got a lot of people here and we got to feed them. And the disciples immediately go to a earthly solution. And their earthly solution is, do we have enough money and do we have enough bread? And the answer to both is, we don't have enough. We don't even have honestly enough for one person to eat enough food, much less 15,000. And so Jesus, I love this, he says, he, so they answer him, they're like, we got, enough, we got nothing. Like, like, we're in trouble here. And this is what Jesus says, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. That's like Jesus saying, hey, watch this. Now, sometimes when your friend says, watch this, like, something could go bad. Get out your phone, you know? Your video could go viral. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Now, ladies, unfortunately, back then, the counting system of the cultural time was we only counted men, not women. Now, listen, we want you to know we count everybody here, okay? So we're, uh, when, when I look out here, I'm not like, yeah, there's about, you know, like 400 men here, you know? I'm like, everyone counts, all right? You're valuable. But what we can take away from this is that most likely, including women and children, 15 to 20,000 people are here, not just five. So really, it should be called the feeding of the 15,000. But here's what it says, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets full with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, here's what I love about this. John is super casual about this crazy miracle. Like he described it as if it had just been like, and then he chopped up some salad, put a little crouton on it and served it up, you know? Like that's how it was described. John wasn't like, yo, Jesus just made 15,000 people's food with five pieces of bread. Like I would have added at least three more exclamation points into this thing. But, but here, here's really what happened. Jesus takes this food and, and he multiplies it and he provides physical bread, physical fish, and not just like barely enough. We've all been to the party where they're like, hey, limit one deviled egg per person, okay? And you're like, I need more than that. You know, you're sneaking back around. That's not that. There was so much that there was 12 baskets full left over. Uh, enough for literally every disciple to have their own lunch for tomorrow. It's awesome. And, and so he, here's the thing that I want us to write down from this is this, that Jesus's followers will experience both impossible provision or impossible circumstances and improbable provision. So just so you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're signing up for both. So if you're in a situation right now where you feel like I am in an impossible circumstance, 
And, and, and sometimes we're in impossible circumstances because we've done something foolish. Jesus still loves us. He still has grace for us. He'll still walk with us through it. But sometimes we have done nothing wrong. We have just been following after God, and throughout all of it, we still say, I feel like I'm in a dead end. And Jesus says, hey, I actually led you to this place because I'm going to bring impossible provision. Jesus could have stationed this whole thing next to a bread store and been like, hey, y'all go just go buy, go buy your food. I've, I've actually got a discount. Use my discount code, and you guys can take care of it. But he didn't. But because when God brings us to an imp- a possible circumstance, be ready because he's also going to bring incredible provision. Jesus does not need a lot to do a lot. And so here's the question that I, I really want us to ask ourselves is this, do we trust Jesus's power? Do we trust Jesus's power? I was, I was uh, sharing with our young adults on, on Thursday night, and, and I shared some of the stuff that I was going to share, or that I'm about to share, and I actually, I had a different thing planned for this, but I was really feeling like as I was sharing it, man, I, w- I wanna share it with our church as well. And so this is the question to start off with, do we trust Jesus's power? Did you know in the scripture, Jesus is amazed by two things. First off, he is amazed by his disciples' lack of faith. He's like, man, I've been doing all of these miracles, all of these incredible things, and you still are having trouble believing. He's also amazed anytime anyone actually believes God for, what he, for who he is and believes that he does have power. I love, I love there's a story from Matthew chapter 8. It's a story of a centurion, a Roman ruler, and his servant is sick. The ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, please heal this beloved servant. And Jesus says, I'll come with you. Lead me to him. And this is what the centurion replies. It says, he says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but you just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So here's the story. This ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I understand authority because I have a group of men that when I say jump, they say how high. When I say go, they're like, I got you, I'm on my way. And he says, I recognize Jesus that you have that authority and that literally anything that you speak can happen. And Jesus is amazed because he says, this guy gets it. He actually truly understands the power that I have. Now, this is where it applies to us. For every follower of Jesus in here, for every disciple in here, Jesus has actually made a really crazy promise to us. It's actually literally mind-blowing. Here it is, John chapter 14, I believe, verse 13, and it says this. Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. You may ask Anything in my name and I will do it. 
That is a wild promise. Like, Jesus is literally saying, if you ask me in my name, I'll do it. Like, I, like whatever you can think of, we're, we're making it happen. Now, we got to talk about this for a second. Because Jesus, if you look at the context of this, he is not speaking to the crowds. He's not speaking to anyone. So this is not all of our invitation to make a giant Amazon wish list and be like, I got trucks and trucks coming to my house. It's not going to happen. Jesus says, this is to my disciples. If you're a disciple, here's the qualifier. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross and let him follow me. So in other words, when I am asking Jesus this, I have already said, Jesus, it's your glory, not my glory. It's your agenda, not my agenda. It's your priority, not mine. So I've already said, I am not anything but a servant of Jesus. You are my king. I'm dedicating my life to you. But when we do that, as we do that, what Jesus is saying is he's inviting us to use holy imagination and to say, God, what could you do? What do you want to do in our communities? What do you want to do in my neighborhood? What do you want to do in this church? How powerful do I really believe you are? I want to pray and believe that you're incredibly powerful. And I've been challenged recently with this question. I've been thinking about it a lot. If Jesus today answered every single prayer that you have been praying, what would actually change in the world? Would anything change? And for some, it would. Some of you guys are praying big prayers. But for some of us, if Jesus actually answered every prayer, maybe your life would be slightly enhanced or, or you, you would get a slightly better situation, but nothing of substance would actually happen. And what we're invited to do as followers of Jesus is pray big prayers and believe that God is all powerful. And here's the question. What, what, what happens when we pray? When we say to God, God, I want to pray a big prayer. Well, one of three things happens. First off, sometimes we pray a big prayer and God actually answers the prayer. How many have prayed an impossible prayer and God's answered it before? Yeah. Not like, God, please let there be all green lights towards work. I'm super late. Like, not like that. Like, like an actual big, big prayer. It's amazing. Sometimes we pray a big prayer and God is like, I'm going to answer that prayer. But, but there's another thing. It's possible that when we're praying a big prayer, God starts to sanctify our prayers. He starts to sanctify our prayers. Well, here's what I mean by that. Well, when I was uh, about like eight years ago, uh, me and Pastor Dave and Barb, we started the harbor. And one of the prayers that I began to pray about the harbor, even early on, was I began to pray, God, please like, just bring us so many young adults that we could even fill up this entire sanctuary with college students and young adults. It was a big prayer. It was a faith-filled prayer. And the reality is God has been so incredibly faithful during the ministry of the harbor. Literally, like, in every season, there's been so many beautiful, beautiful people there. But, but numerically speaking, we've been fairly consistent for, for seven years. There hasn't been this, like, crazy spike, and it's like, man, I, I can't believe this. 
And so what God has shown me is that in some way, early on, I, I was kind of praying a selfish prayer. Because I did want a lot of people to come, but I wanted it to be because I would look really awesome. And I wanted everybody to be like, Brian must be an incredible leader, an incredible pastor for all these people to be here. Maybe he should write books and go on speaking tours for how amazing and brilliant he is, you know? <laughs> and, and so God was sanctifying my prayer. And what God has shown me is that, man, our focus as a church, not just as the harbor, but our focus as a church is we want to help you follow Jesus and not only follow Jesus, but help other people follow Jesus, that you're not just a spectator, but you're actually in the game making disciples. And as we do that, I believe we will reach many, many people, more than 5,000, more than that can fill this room. But, but sometimes God has to sanctify our prayers. And then the third thing is that sometimes we pray prayers full of faith and God doesn't actually answer the prayer, but he still rewards the faith. There's a crazy passage in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is all about faith and all about men who are faithful and women who are faithful, these, these heroes of the faith. And there's a verse in there, and it says this. It says, these died in faith without receiving the promise. Now, that is not like a coffee mug verse. Like it's my life verse. I died in faith without having received the promise. There's actually another part of it where it says these died in faith without having received the promise, but they greeted it from afar. So it's actually even more depressing. It's like they waved goodbye to their dreams as they died. <laughs> goodbye, dreams. Kind of sad. But here's what's beautiful about it. As you keep reading, here's what it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And so here's what happens when you pray bold, big, faith-filled prayers, is that God may answer them. He may radically transform our community. And we should be praying big prayers of faith. And God will sanctify our desires in the middle of them, but for the prayers that don't come true, God still looks at us and he says, I'm proud of you because you believed how powerful I was. You actually believed in faith that I could do anything. And one day when we stand before God, God will look at us and say, well done, I'm proud to be called your God because you believed in how powerful I was. And so I wanna encourage us and I wanna pray, man, may we be a church that's praying big prayers. May you pray, God, help me to lead someone to Jesus this year. God, help me to be involved with helping people grow. Help me to be involved in helping marriages be restored, children be discipled. God, I pray that this, the neighborhood that I live in would be turned upside down for the gospel. I pray that this community would be turned upside down, that churches all over this community would be filled with people on Easter. God, I pray that you would send people from our church to the nations, to plant churches, to be missionaries. Let's be people who pray big prayers for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's do it. Yeah, we can clap for that. All right, let's keep going. We're going to finish this story up. Verse 14, it says, After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
So again, we're reminded that we're not praying for our agenda, but for Jesus's. Here, they recognized that Jesus had authority, but they wanted to use his authority for their selfish purposes, not for Jesus's agenda. And so Jesus withdrew himself. So Jesus, he withdraws. He's alone in the wilderness. He's praying and seeking God. And he sends his disciples down back to the boat. And this is what we read, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples came down to the lake where they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. Once again, John, super casual. By the way, Jesus was just walking on water. He'd already walked about three or four miles on water, and now he's approaching the boat, still walking on water. But John's like, they're just walking on water. And this is what he said. He said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 21, then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So here we see this crazy storm is happening. Disciples are rowing, and Jesus, he approaches the boat. And this shows us a couple things about Jesus. First off, it does show us how great his authority is, that he literally has authority over everything, including natural elements, including the weather, including the laws of physics. He has that kind of authority. But here's also what it shows us. Jesus sent his disciples into this storm. Jesus didn't say, yo, be careful. Go around it. There's a storm coming. He actually sent them into it. And Jesus drew near them while the storm was happening. But what's crazy is that Jesus' miracle is actually not the thing that brought them comfort. His voice is what brought them comfort. His words was what brought them comfort. And so here's the last thing we're going to learn, and we'll close with this, that Jesus' followers are promised both terrifying trouble and God's comforting presence. And I think sometimes we expect that when we start following Jesus, our life is always going to get way better. And we look at our lives when hard things are happening and we always assume a hard thing must be happening because I wasn't following Jesus correctly. Now again, we can do foolish things and end up with consequences for that. But for those of us who are following Jesus, we are actually guaranteed trouble in this world. We are guaranteed hardships. And so we shouldn't be shocked and blown away if our lives are in deep turmoil. But what Jesus said is this. He made a promise in John chapter 16. It's up on the screen. Jesus said this. I've told you these things so that in me you have peace. And he says this. In this world, you will have trouble. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. And so what we got to understand and what we got to know is this, that Whatever you're walking through, 
When you wake up and you look at your phone or you turn on the news and you see deep trouble, or when you get the text, when you get the phone call and trouble is happening, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about it. He does care. He provides. But he has actually promised that this will happen. But he said, in the middle of it, I will still bring you peace. I will still bring you my presence. And I will never leave you or forsake you. I will walk with you through it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder that although we are tired, although we are afraid, that we are still called to move forward. And that sometimes all we can do is work hard, rest, and, in, and, and count on you for impossible provision and comforting presence. And so God, I pray that that's what we would do. That as we wake up tomorrow, as we wake up Tuesday, as we wake up Thursday and over the next few weeks, that we would work hard, that we would rest in you, and that we would look to you for impossible provision and for comforting presence. And now I want to take a moment. If there is anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, in reality, Jesus' presence is comforting because he has died for our sins and he has forgiven our sins and he has chosen to walk with us. And so in order to truly experience the fullness of God's comforting presence, the fullness of God's love, we must put our faith and trust in him. We must be born again. And so if there's anyone here who doesn't have that relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you right now to pray a simple prayer. And that prayer, it's not magic words, but it is simply a prayer to say, Jesus, I want to surrender everything to you and I want you to walk with me during this life and give me hope for the life to come. And so I want to invite you if you do have a if you don't have a relationship with Jesus or if you've walked away to just pray this prayer. Say dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that you have died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose again. Help me to follow you. Help me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.